This morning, we are starting a new series. And it's in the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles, that's where we're going to be, Philippians. And, you know, to be honest with you, when, when it comes to doing series and, and doing this, you know, I, I've been a pastor now. And I'm much younger in person, by the way. Let me start with that. But I've been doing this a long time. So in a lot of ways, I'm kind of an old dog trying to learn a few new tricks. And one of the things that, you know, today they, they tell me is that, you know, when you come and you do this, you, you've got to brand your series. It used to be we just say we do Philippians, right? And that's just not how my mind works. And so I have been for, for these past months as my lovely staff have been pushing me. Come on, what, so what, what is it? So I've been reading and reading. Of course, the easy ones are some of the themes of the book. Joy, uh, humility. Uh, our, our position in Christ. But I read it, there was just something that it just kept coming back to me. I just didn't know how to express it. And then one of my, my crack team thought of a beautiful way, calling it gospel impact. Because really, when you get to the heart of what Philippians is about, is that when you and I not only know the gospel and allow it to change us, it's not just about salvation, it's not just about going to heaven, but it changes everything. When we live the gospel, when we let the gospel continue to to live itself out in our life, for instance, it changes the way we look at life. That's why Paul could say, for me to live as Christ. To die, it's gain. It, uh, it changes the way we deal with one another. So in all lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. Uh, it, changes, uh, it changes the way we look at hardship. I mean, Paul's sitting in prison. He can't be out doing his, you know, his Paul thing, his missionary thing. And yet he says, you know, what's happened to me is fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel. And in that I rejoice. It's about how we affect and deal with one another. By the way, you ladies in the church that aren't getting along, you need to get along because you got to live out the gospel. Gospel impact. And when we let the gospel permeate our lives and we live it out, and we continue to explore how, man, it impacts everything. So that's, that's, that's what we're branding it, gospel impact. And today, we're going to get all the way to Philippians 1.1. So if you want to turn there, we're going to get there in just a minute. But here's the thing, and, and when you you know, the great thing about the Word of God is that it is for us. It's understandable. One of the things that will really help you understand when you go to study the Bible is to take some time to look at some of the historical, cultural, geographic parts because there's so much of it that weaves into what's being done. In fact, it's one of the reasons why for those of you that have been around here, you know, I've been blessed to travel. I don't like traveling. I'm, I'm kind of a homebody. But we have started about every two years, we, we do take a trip because I want to take anybody here who wants to go to Israel. Because when you can get to Israel and you can see the geography and you can begin to understand some of the culture and the historical significance when, when this, it'll make the Bible come alive. So I want to start this morning with talking a little bit about some of the historical, geographic, uh, cultural background of Philippians. And 
to begin with, let's just talk a little bit about the city. The city of Philippi, it's in Macedonia, there in Europe, and it's, uh, it was originally actually founded by Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great. It was conquered by him back in well, like 365 BCE or something like that. And being the humble guy that he was, when he conquered the city, he gave it his name. So it was named Philippi. And then in about 160 or 165 BCE is when the Romans actually conquered that part of, of uh, Europe and it became under Roman rule. But for our thinking and kind of what's going on here with Paul, you almost got to fast forward to about 42 BCE. There's a, some people that you probably know in history but play a major part here. There's a man by the name of Octavian. You maybe know him better from the Bible as Caesar Augustus. A guy by the name of Mark Antony. Remember him in history. And then the two guys that actually killed Julius Caesar, the Caesar of Rome, which is Brutus and Cassius. They all, Brutus and Cassius, came against Octavian and uh, Mark Antony in a battle in this area. And Octavian and, and Mark Antony were able to defeat them. And so this came then under their control. And what Octavian did is he then established Philippi as a Roman colony. By that, you, it means that it wasn't just part of their domain. It's just that everybody in the city was a full Roman citizen. It was just like living in Rome. And because it was now a Roman colony, what he did was he made this the retirement village for many of his officers and his soldiers that have fought with him in battle. And so this was a place where they would live and they would live in freedom and be just like Rome, but Rome was getting overwhelmed overwhelmed with people, so that's what happened. Then, a few years later, Octavian and uh, Mark Antony actually squared off in battle. Octavian won that. That's why he became Caesar Augustus. And he then took the military people of Mark Antony's army. He also allowed them to come and to live here. So that's a little bit of the background. Now, one of the things you got to know is that it's a major city because what Rome was known for was building highways. And so all across the peninsula here of Europe, uh, of course, you could see Italy. You cross the Adriatic Sea, and now the Ignatian Way goes all the way through, and guess where it goes? Philippi. And it's going all the way to Asia. So this is a major place. Now, with that as a background, what you have to understand was that the city was very loyal to Rome. I mean, these are former soldiers, and even more so to Caesar, because he had given them the city. He had raised it in status to be like Rome itself, and so they were very loyal to him. Maybe explain some of the things in the book. Back with Caesar Augustus, he began to introduce something called emperor worship where uh, you had to, along with all the other gods, worship the Caesar. Nero's in power now. He didn't do that in Rome, though there was more of an emphasis out in outline areas like this. But that sense of what it even would become a couple Caesars after him, where actually you had to go once a year, throw a little incense on the altar, and say three words, Caesar, 
is Lord. Well, let me ask you, if you're a Christian, can you say that? No. Now again, we're not sure that was happening yet here in Philippi, but those were some of the strong strengths that were coming. And this city was very aligned to Caesar. And so we now all of a sudden know Caesar isn't Lord. In fact, maybe explains a little bit Philippians chapter 2. For this reason, God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah. And so that's a little bit of the background of what's going on. Now, we know that the city itself was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. And this is all laid out in Acts chapter 16. I wish we had time to go read it. It's a very interesting story. If I can just surmise it for you, Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey, went to go see the churches in Turkey or Asia Minor that Paul had started on his first journey. And when they got done with that, their desire was actually to go north. What they wanted to do, they were in here, they'd visited these churches they had started. They wanted to go north into Asia. And God wouldn't let them. And then they had a dream of somebody over here in Macedonia, which is this area in here, saying, come and help us. So they took that as of the Lord. They traveled across the Neapolis, and then they went directly to Philippi, and that's where they began their ministry now in Macedonia or in Europe. And so as as they, as Paul, it was his MO, what he would always do is try to go to the Jews first. Well, this is primarily Roman and Greek. There's not a lot of Jews there. In fact, not even enough Jews to have a synagogue in the city. So where do you find Jews when there's not a synagogue? Well, on the Sabbath day, you go outside the city to the closest little river, and that's where they would meet for prayer. That's what we see in, in Acts 16. Paul goes there along with Silas, along with Luke, along with Timothy, and they meet a lady by the name of Lydia. Lydia was from Tyre, Tyre, which is Asia Minor, Turkey, And she was a seller of purple. She was a very successful business lady. And she is there, and she is there for prayer. They come, Paul shares the gospel. She comes to believe, and her whole household does. In fact, this is what it says in Acts 16. And when she and her household, by the way, we talk a lot about the word oikos here. That's what it means, her people. They had been baptized. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. So she now provided for the food and the shelter for Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy as they began to minister. So as they're ministering in the city, the next thing that happens, so the first part of this church is Lydia and her house. Then, as Paul is ministering, there's a little slave girl there who's full of demons who claimed and had this reputation she could tell the future. Now, demons can't tell the future, but they can make things happen so they can make it appear that they know the future. And this lady, when she sees Paul and Silas, the demons know exactly, so she begins to follow them and say, hey, these men are from God, and they tell the way of salvation. Now, what's interesting is, is that aggravated Paul. Why? I mean, wouldn't that have been nice? You know, she's announcing it for you. And I think it maybe is this idea that Paul didn't want the enemy getting any, any of the credit or any glory here. So after day after day, it says this is happening. He finally just turned around. He'd had enough. He, 
he commands the evil spirit to leave this girl. She's set free. Good story, right? No. Because her masters now know that they just lost their income. She can't, quote unquote, tell the future. So they drag them in front of the magistrates. They beat them with with rods. They throw them into jail. They chain them to the wall. They put their feet in stocks. They charge the jailer to keep them. Talk about gospel impact. I don't know about you, but if that had just happened to me, I'd probably be sitting there saying, God, where were you? God, I'm out here serving you. God, you know, you, you let me down. It's not Paul. They're thinking, man, you know what? God thought we were worthy enough that we could suffer with him. Hallelujah. They begin to sing praises. They begin to sing good grace. I don't know what they sang, but songs like that, you know, like we, we just did. And, and they're, I mean, they're having a hallelujah meeting. And about midnight, God showed up and there's an earthquake. And the jail cells doors fell open and the chains fell off the wall and the, the locks on the stocks. And in fact, the jailer and the jail would be right, you know, part really of the jailer's house. When he, when he woke up and he saw the doors are open, he knew it was his life for them. If they were gone, they were, he was going to be toast tomorrow. So he's about ready to kill himself. And Paul says, no, 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 don't harm yourself. We're all here. And so he grabs the light and he comes in. And it's not just Paul and Silas that are there. It's all the prisoners. None of them have left. They are amazed at the, what Paul and Silas are telling them about their God. And he asks this beautiful question, Acts 16.30, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gives this beautiful answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your oikos. Because they're all right behind them. And they heard the gospel, they believed. By the way, it tells that they went and got baptized. That's the thing. You believe in Jesus, you go get baptized. And so that's how the church of Philippi started. Lydia, her family. The jailer, her family. I'm going to suggest to you some bad guys that are sitting in the prison who just got saved too and their families, and that's the church. And that's what's happening. Now, what you'll find about this letter is that it's a very personal letter. It's very warm. There's love. You know, in most of Paul's letters that he wrote, like we just were studying 1 Corinthians, he starts with Paul, an apostle. An apostle. It's his position that he has. Notice he doesn't start with that. No, it's just Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. You see, he didn't need to flash the apostleship card. They knew him. They loved him. They cared about him. And that's why this relationship that you see throughout this book is just so warm. It's so pers- the the uh, church of Philippi had, had sent a gift. In fact, that's kind of what took place here. So he started the church. He went on. He did a third missionary journey. After the third journey, he went back to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's falsely accused. They're going to kill him. He appeals to Caesar which every Roman citizen had the right to do. And he'd always wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel, so he's just going to let Rome pay for it now. You know, that's the way Paul worked. So he ends up in Rome under house arrest. Remember the, uh, the highway? So word gets back to Philippi. Paul now is in house arrest in Rome. 
We looked last week in 2 Corinthians, a church that had a lot of poverty, but they gave a gift. They sent it with Epaphroditus to Rome to help Paul pay his living expenses. Paul writes this letter back to them, thanking them for his gift and encouraging them in, in their faith. And the thing that he starts with here is about identity. So let's read verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. You know, the first thing that the gospel does, you know, it not only forgives us, it not only changes us, but it gives us a new identity. And that identity that Paul here expresses about he and Timothy is this idea that they are bond servants, the idea of a slave, that they don't belong to themselves, they belong to Jesus, that he's their master. Now, to be honest, here in America, because of our horrendous history of slavery, this is almost a repulsive thought to us. But it wouldn't have been to them. That wasn't their context. In fact, it would have been a thought that Paul is pulling on in a positive way, not to be pushed away from, but also to speak to things. So, like, for instance, the first thing when you think about a, being a bondservant, of being a slave of someone, is humility. It's humble service. It's about serving somebody else. So here's Paul sitting in prison serving the Lord, but he's in prison for serving the Lord, but he's not complaining, he's not grousing, he's rejoicing in the Lord. Why? Because he's just a humble servant. He's just doing what God has asked him to do. He's just following the master. Humility. It picks up the theme, by the way, that he's going to pick up here in chapter 2 when he says, hey, don't do anything out of selfishness or strife, but in lowliness of mind, prefer one another. Oh, by the way, use Jesus as your example, who also became a bondservant, right? Humble service. And isn't it interesting that he, he does something here he doesn't do in any of his books. When he, when he talks about who he's writing to, to the saints of Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, he adds some people here, the overseers and the deacons, the leaders of the church. Now that's an interesting thing because he doesn't do that in any of his other books. So why here? Well, it's interesting to me because later on, we, we know that the, the the church was started. Here's Lydia and her household. And so obviously there's some of the leaders in the church too. And there's two ladies in the church who are having a problem that he's going to address eventually, who probably were leaders in the church. And he's trying to remind them, folk, in leadership, what are we really to be? Jesus says, if you want to be great among you, you first have to be a servant of all. It's servant leadership. Why? Because Jesus is the master. And because he's the master, not only is a humble position, but he's a master that we have to obey. That's where we get our marching orders. We don't get it from Caesar. We don't get it from our culture around us. 
We don't bow down and say Caesar's Lord because that's put upon us. We, we listen to our master and that's Jesus. And folks, this is one of those foundational tenet pieces about who we are in Christ. We have a master. We respond to him. We obey him no matter what else is going on. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 16? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why? Because Jesus is the master. Jesus is the one. So he's the one we listen to. So we can't say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. We can't be quiet when we're told to keep quiet because we we were told to to win. In fact, it was interesting. Barna, uh, it's it's a research, a Christian research company, just came out with an interesting piece of research. And I don't think it's maybe quite as bad as this headline's going to make it look, but this was the headline. Almost half of millennials, and the, you who are millennials know who you are, you know, you're the 20-something, maybe early 30s, almost half of millennials agree at least somewhat with this statement, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day come to share your faith. What, what he's saying is, is that as they've interviewed millennials, almost half of them think that it is wrong to share our faith with the idea of converting, of evangelizing. And I think some of it goes to this idea that is permeated in our culture that if, that if you disagree with someone or someone disagrees with you, they're judging you. That's why you know, our disagreements have gotten so personal and so polarized. And I'm going to suggest some of us boomers and busters have bought into that same thing too. You know, sometimes we can just disagree and it's, you know, it's not about them as a person. It's just we disagree, right? But let me ask you a question. If Jesus is the master and he said, go make disciples of all nations, go preach the gospel to all the world, who do we listen to? Do we listen to him or do we listen to the culture? You see, the idea here is is our identity is that we are servants of Jesus. We're a slave. He's the master. We do what he told us to do. And then the best part of it is this whole idea that because he's the master, he owns us. We are his possession. We are his people. And with that comes all kinds of things. Because he owns us, he's responsible. That's why you think of Philippians 4 19. My God shall supply all your need. Why? Because he's the owner. We belong to him. He's promised never to leave us. He's promised never to forsake us. And oh, by the way, because you belong to him, your citizenship is no longer here. Your citizenship is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3. It's all about our identity. We are the bondservants of Jesus. We have been bought. We are loved. Do you remember what uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have a God, you're not your own, for you are bought with a price. That's your identity. You've been bought. You belong to Jesus. Peter would remind us he didn't buy us with silver and gold and the things of this world that the world values. We were bought with the precious blood of Christ. That is who you are. 
bondservants of Jesus Christ. And then he says this to all the saints, to all the saints. Now listen, folks, I got to get you to understand this. If you're here today and you have accepted Christ as your Savior, do you know that today as you sit here, you are a saint? We have a room full of saints That's what he says to all the saints. You're a saint today. You don't have to die to be made a saint. You don't have to have a provable miracle to be a saint. You don't have to have some ecclesial body someday vote on whether you're a saint or not. You are a saint. And sadly, the Roman Catholic Church has really messed this one up. Because what Paul says is you're a saint to all the saints who are Philippi. Now think about who he's talking about. He's talking about the jailer. He's talking about the guys in prison. He's talking about Lydia. He, to all the saints. Well, just as much as Paul was a saint. And Timothy. And Peter and James and John and Martin Luther and Spurgeon and Billy Graham. You are a saint. That's who you are in Jesus. You say, well, what does it mean to be a saint? Well, the word means to be a holy one. You've been made holy. You've been made righteous. You've been made pure. You have been washed clean. You you have been purified. That's the heart of it. In fact, you think of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's who you are, people of God's own choosing, so that you could show forth his praises. In the darkness in which you live, that's who you are. You've been purified. You have been made righteous. You not only have been forgiven, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You today, as you sit here, if you know Jesus, you are a saint of God. There's a second part to this idea of saint. It's not only the fact that we just have simply been purified and made holy, But because we're holy, we've been set apart. We've been set apart from the world now to serve God. It's the idea of um, probably the best illustration I could give you. It's the idea of the things that were used in the temple for the sacrifices. They had to be purified. In fact, if you're reading through the Bible, I know that's kind of where we are right now in the book of Exodus. And they're purifying all the things that are going to be used in the tabernacle. And when they were purified, they were set apart. They couldn't use them anymore for just normal things. They could only be used for God in the temple. They were set apart. You have been made holy. You have been made righteous. You have been set apart separately to be used of God, to be his mouthpiece, to be his hands and feet. You are a saint. In fact, you think about being set apart. I couldn't help but think of Paul's words in Ephesians. When he goes back to our old identity, even when you were dead in your transgressions, that's who we were. But who are we now? He has made us alive together with Jesus, for by grace you have been saved. He has raised us up with him, and even today he has seated. Notice that's a past tense. It's not a future. It's a past tense. He has seated us with Jesus in heavenly places. I mean, today it's just as good as though we were there. Because we are in Christ 
and all the saints in Philippi who are in Christ Jesus. Their earthly dwelling is in Philippi, but spiritually they belong to Jesus. You're the saints in Goodyear. You live in Goodyear or Tallison or Avondale or Litchfield Park, wherever it is. But your real identity is that you are a saint of the kingdom of God. You belong to Jesus. And I couldn't help but think of that prophecy. It's one of the first times that we see saints in relation to us, that word used. It's in Daniel chapter 7. It's a prophecy of all that's going to come on the earth, all these big kingdoms. And finally, God is going to step in. The Son of Man is going to come, and he is going to establish his kingdom. And this is what it says in Daniel 7. But the saints the holy ones, the ones set apart. The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Folk, Daniel was talking about us. Because if you know Jesus, you're a saint. Identity. It is the power of the gospel. The gospel not only saves us, The gospel not only forgives us, the gospel not only gives us a home in heaven, but the gospel changes who we are. We have become a servant of Jesus. We belong to him. That speaks to humility. That speaks to following after him. That speaks to the fact that we are his possession and we're saints. We have been made holy. We have been made righteous. Don't let this world tell you that, man, you're struggling with that sin because you're just bad. No, you have been made good and clean. You don't have to live in that sin anymore. He has changed your identity. And because we are saints, we have been set apart to worship him. How did all that happen? Through the blood of Jesus. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it today. He gave it to us as a gift.